You're tuned in to Atlanta Fringe Audio, the podcasting network of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. Want to win a couple of free tickets to the Atlanta Fringe Festival June 5th through 11th? Enjoy Fringe Audio and fill out the Fringe Audio crossword puzzle. It's that easy. 10 winners will be selected. Check out the description box for all the details or visit atlantafringe.org fringe dash audio. Now for the show. It's for mature audiences. It contains adult content. Hey, 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 step right up, this is it, a real spicy, whirly-burly-girly show. Step right up, no week for seats, the show is just about to start. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Have you ever been to a burlesque show? Whether you have or you haven't, look up the word burlesque in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and you'll find a positively baffling definition of the word. Then maybe take a moment to look at Wikipedia. And you'll see something similar in the first few paragraphs, but keep reading the entry and the definition and history of its origin and development into modern day stages, blossoms and turns in every which way to a modern day commentary of how burlesque at its core is theater of the people. If you've never been to a burlesque show, I highly recommend it. Not just because I'm a burlesque performer and I need to pay my bills, but because it's an art form of passion and representation. It can be glamorous and funny. It can be sad and thought-provoking. It can be heartwarming and devastating. It can be all things and nothing all at the same time. It's meant to be a mirror for you, the audience. Each performance lasts between 3 and 10 minutes, so if you don't like something you see right now, just wait a while. Maybe get a drink at the bar, and perhaps the next act will resonate for you. Each show is different. It's, It's nebulous like that. Different acts, different themes of shows, different performers, different producers. A special moment crafted just for the live audience present, and you won't ever see it like that again. It's special like that. This presentation will be offered in three parts, six stories, all from a handful of performers from the award-winning Atlanta-based burlesque troupe, The Candy Box Review. Consider this a concept album, one of stories, of histories, of experiences. This project is intended to be a multimedia event. We invite you to experience the audible media of this visual art project first. We hope that at some point in the not-too-distant future, We will present this piece in all of its bright and shining glory to a stage near you. So be sure to follow the Candy Box Review on all of its platforms, especially if you enjoy this presentation. Our first act is about trust. In a burlesque show, a performer needs to have a lot of trust. Trust in the venue security... Trust that the producer is on the up and up. Trust in their fellow performers backstage. Trust in the audience that they'll be on their side. Because at the end of the day, the artist takes the stage and places themselves in a very vulnerable position. This first story is about Vixie Todd's experience traversing the small stages of Atlanta and how misplaced trust 
led her to where she is today. So you're a woman who wants to be a comedian. Well, first you need to find an open mic. There's a cute little theater in Villarica that will give you four minutes to do your first ever set. This set will poke fun at James Blunt's iconic song, You're Beautiful. And the audience will realize that the song is way more stupid than they remember. But more importantly, the audience will laugh. At that open mic, you will meet two delightful comedians who become like your comedy parents. They will take you under their wing and offer you comedy classes. They will encourage you to do more open mics. And sometimes your jokes will bomb. But most of the time, the audience will laugh. From there, you will meet many other comedians, and most of them will be men. Some of them will be genuinely good guys and even better stand-up comedians, but others... Well, let's talk about the others. One host, a guy whom you genuinely respect, will hump you on stage after he introduces you. The same guy will put on an all-female comedian show only once because, quote, People just don't want to see a female-led show. End quote. You will invite a comedian that you know to one of your shows. You will warn him that you work blue and tell a lot of dirty jokes. He will roll his eyes and say, Well, of course, all female comedians work blue. That will take you back. Most comedians, regardless of their gender, work blue. One male comedian who is nowhere near as funny as you has an entire bit where he just sings the word pussy over and over again. Rodney Carrington has an entire song about his 12-inch dick. Is this guy really trying to tell you that women comedians are so much dirtier than the men? You'll almost never get paid. Out of all the open mics you do and all the shows you get booked for, you only get paid for two of them. There will be one show where a comedian drops out and the producer and host of the show, let's call him KV, asked you to fill in. But because you weren't on the original docket, the venue won't pay you, although all of the other comedians are getting paid. That's fine. You understand. However, you are asked to bail out one of the comedians from jail so that he can attend the show. So this show actually ends up costing you money. KV starts off as one of your closest friends in comedy, but eventually his talent starts to go to his head and his money starts going up his nose. And you start to see a different side to him. He turns into the, where's my hug guy? And then he turns into the, I'm going to pull on your clothes and force you to give me a hug guy. After the Orange Menace wins the 2016 election, KV starts pandering to a much more conservative crowd. Once Trump is elected, KV starts to let his transphobia shine through as well. You try to talk to him one night about not letting a trans woman who was his friend at one time perform at his open mic. You even try to give up your slot for the other performer. But he ignores your concern, smiles a creepy and coked-out smile, and pulls you into another hug despite your efforts to push him off of you. 
all while lamenting the fact that you have a boyfriend and he a girlfriend. I saw KV as a friend and colleague, but he made it clear that he, as well as other comedians, saw me only as a piece of ass. The interaction is not as bad as what some other women comics have had to deal with in the past, but it still unnerves you. That same year, after several of your comedy heroes get exposed for the creeps that they are, you deliver your last set where you call out all male comedians as a whole because even if they don't contribute to the problem, they sure as hell benefit from it. You open your set by saying, to all my male comedian friends, stop it. And you know exactly what it is. I'm serious. Stop it. Because at this point, it's just hacky more than anything. You call out the comedian who said only women comedians are excessively blue by pointing out all of the dirty jokes in Shakespeare plays. You call out the comedian who just sings the word pussy a million times. You call them all out and no one laughs. You don't expect them to. And you leave. You leave the bar, you leave the comedians, you leave stand-up, perhaps forever. So you're a woman who has just left comedy, but you still want to perform. You still want to make people laugh. You want to honor your theater degree in some way. That is when you're introduced to the world of burlesque. So you're a woman who wants to be a burlesque dancer. You have secretly wanted to be a burlesque dancer since high school. You even wrote about your desire in an assignment for class, which didn't go over that well with the class. But where do you start? You don't know any burlesque dancers, but you do know a lot of Renaissance Fair performers, and the Venn diagram of Rennies and burlesque performers is a stack of pancakes. You go to a burlesque show with your friends, and then you go to another burlesque show, and then you take a workshop, and before you know it, you and your friends are putting together a charity show with the help of quite a few seasoned performers. Burlesque shows you that people will definitely pay to see a show run by women and femme-presenting people. Burlesque shows you that there is nothing wrong with women who want to be funny and overtly sexual all at the same time. Burlesque welcomes performers of all races, body types, sexual orientations, and more, while openly shunning predatory people like KV. Burlesque gives you... Me... It gives me something that I never had as a comedian. Empowerment. No longer was I a piece of ass. Now I was a dancer and storyteller with an amazing ass. Burlesque did not come as easily to me as stand-up did, and for a while I did consider quitting. But after performing a number to the song Send in the Clowns that one kind audience member regarded as cathartic, I finally felt like a true burlesque performer. It was a feeling that I would not trade for all of the open mic nights in the world. What truly makes me happy is that I didn't have to give up stand-up completely. Thanks to Sirens of the South, I got to perform one of my favorite sets for a Tease Tuesday. And if you want to hear it, I guess you'll just have to book me for another show. Wink, wink. Today, people who knew me back when I was a struggling comedian often ask me how I went from stand-up to burlesque, and I simply say, you get sexually harassed less and paid more when you start taking your clothes off for strangers. But now, you all know the true 
reason. Our next story is about trust in your community. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'd argue it takes a village to raise a village. This next story is about Minnie Mercury's wild adventure to another city with her candy box and troop mates, a bra, and some rhinestones. A good troop is like a good bra. It's all about the support. How to build a crisis bra. I am expected to be one of the most put-together people in my burlesque troupe. I'm a stage manager and a producer, and both of these roles require one to be responsible for the lives, performances, schedules, costumes, props, etc. of several people all at once. Dependable, reliable, on top of my shit, I make the glitter and the sparkle go round. And it's up to me to herd the proverbial sequined cats, both behind the scenes and on stage. The story I am about to tell you, though, has nothing to do with any of these adjectives or responsibilities. In fact, this story deals with the antonyms of those words. Come join me in a tale of big titties, blue rhinestones, and the true definition of friendship. I was both honored and humbled to be asked to perform in one of my troupe's premier group numbers based on the hashtag MeToo movement. It's a beautiful lyrical piece that depicts a group of women rising from the ashes of sex monsters and male abusers. The most moving part of the number is when we strip off our dirty, blackened sheath dresses to reveal a stunning rainbow of colors. Each dancer represents a different color of Roy G. Biv with their bra color, and we all have matching striped rainbow shorts on bottom. This number is incredibly emotional, not only for the audience, but for the performers. Each time we put this number on stage, it felt like cutting open a scar. But it was rewarding, and one of the most connective numbers I've ever had the pleasure of performing. Our story today finds us traveling to one of the many shows and festivals where we were asked to perform this number, a benefit show for the prestigious Bijou Theater in Knoxville, Tennessee. Myself and three other troopmates loaded up in our choreographer's car to make the four-hour journey. The car ride, in my opinion, is one of the best parts of any journey. You can play silly car games, have deep conversations, get to know folks with some never-have-I-ever, and eat unhealthy gas station delicacies. I was in the passenger seat just loving the company and enjoying the ride, roughly three hours into our four-hour trip, when my anxious mind forced me into a mental scan of the luggage I had packed. At that very moment, the greatest sense of dread washed over my body, I panicked like I had never panicked before, and I knew I had to turn to the choreographer and driver of our journey to admit my foolish oversight. I looked over in her direction, mustered out a pitiful, hey, uh, um, and then delivered the news that nobody wanted to hear. I had left behind my blue bra. Without missing a beat, driving at 80 miles an hour down I-75, 
my choreographer yells, you did what? Minnie, your titties don't just fit in any bra. Quick, check, what color bra do you have on under your shirt right now? I sheepishly peeked down the front of my shirt to see that I was wearing a black lace bra, which is super sexy and fun, but is definitely not blue. Initiate panic mode. At my wise choreographer stated, I can't just find a bra on the shelf at Target or Walmart. No, I have to spend the hundred plus bucks at big girl stores and fancy bra shops to bolster these boulders. We all began brainstorming what to do and how we could find a bra that could fit these ginormous boobs. I'm both blessed and cursed. All of us passengers couldn't Google the words plus-size bra, craft store, and near me fast enough. We were able to locate a Lane Bryant and a Michaels in the same shopping center upon entering Knoxville. I was thrown out the car door to retrieve a bra and my sparkly cohorts were given the mission to retrieve the fabric, rhinestones, and craft glue. All items were acquired in a matter of ten minutes, and we made it to the theater just in time for dress rehearsal. Of course, the only phrases I heard for the next thirty minutes were, You were supposed to be the responsible one, and you better be glad I love you. The rest of the evening was truly a blur. And I can honestly say I have never been more impressed with and thankful for a group of people in my life. My choreographer covered a massive nude bra with the bluest of blue fabrics. This included pinning, stitching, covering straps, and creating an adjustable opening for the bra hooks. And let me tell you, that ain't a small amount of fabric to sew. My troop members all gathered around a coffee table and systematically glued and placed at least a hundred blue rhinestones on the cups of the bra. We pulled that shit off. I will never be able to forget about that experience, mainly because the choreographer won't let me, but also because we truly came together as a team to make it happen. I have never felt so foolish, yet loved and supported all at once. As a side note, I felt extra supported, physically speaking, too. My choreographer really did get the last laugh. Why, you ask? Well, instead of buying a 46H bra my size, I bought a 42H. All night, I felt as if the top half of my body would separate from the lower half. I was truly afraid that my rib cage would be left with permanent indentations, but the pain felt like some form of penance and remembrance. I'm not Catholic, but surely that was me atoning for my sins. So I now give you the steps so that you can build your own crisis bra. One, have huge titties. Two, forget to pack your very specific color bra for aforementioned huge titties. Three, Google. Four, befriend a true burlesque superstar and leader who knows all sorts of things, including how to cover a bra. 5. Find yourself surrounded by the most badass and supportive troop around. 6. Be as swift as the coursing river with all the force of a great typhoon. And voila! You too can have your own crisis bra. In this second act, we explore the concept of self-love. One in the early years and the other in the latter years. And how burlesque plays a role in different but valid ways. We begin in the early years as I break some big podcast rule, I'm sure, to tell my personal story.
When I was two, my mother would drop me off at Miss Jane's totally illegal daycare operation in the burbs of the bustling town of Amarillo, Texas. At this daycare, we watched Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and The Electric Company. We'd watch these shows, get a lunch of either hot dogs, drowned in ketchup, beanie weenies, or fish sticks, all of which I can't even abide the smell of these days, and then we'd get a nap. Man, I miss those mandatory naps, don't you? If I had mandatory naps, I would take advantage of them every damn day. Not two-year-old me, though. No, no, no. I rarely napped. That was a time for fantasizing and working out the problems of my two-year-old world. Jane didn't care. Jane just cared that we were quiet while she used that time to watch her soap operas on the living room couch down the hallway. Like sands of the hourglass, these are the days of our lives. My mom used to make fun of Jane's taste in soap operas. She was a general hospital girl. Still is, as far as I know. So I say I didn't actually ever nap, but every now and then I did. And every now and then, I'd wet the bed. I was too. What do you want? Miss Jane took it in stride. She bundled me off to the bathroom and handed me a large t-shirt and a towel and instructed me to take off my soiled clothes. She sat me in the corner of her laundry room and left me to wait out the washer and dryer while she continued to watch Days of Our Lives in the other room. Now, for some reason, she had a big shop light mounted on the wall in the corner of the room, and it cast a shadow, my shadow. It started out as shadow puppets, bunnies, butterflies, camels, but then I began to notice the shape of my feet in the shadow, the turn of my ankle, the shape of my legs, and then I began to strut. I began to move like a dancer. I began to wear heels. I began to be a ballerina. I began to be a character from Zoobly Zoo. I was a magical, mystical ingenue. And I began to hum and sing as quietly as I could, creating shapes and forms and beauty, all for this audience of me. What are you doing? Um, uh... Nothing. I, I just got tired of sitting. I sat back down, but not for long. I think about this moment a lot because it was the first time I really saw my body and even really admired it. To this day, I've said, I'm not a dancer. I'm a shape maker who thinks about what it takes to get from one shape to another. This is what I tell my students who are scared to show themselves as anything other than awkward torsos with limbs moving around through the world with no purpose, but to exist and to move from point A to point B with no thought, but to bear through it. Because I have no focused dance training, none whatsoever, so I feel weird saying I'm a dancer too. I'm a person who tells stories, my stories with my body, by making shapes. It's the most authentic art of mine. I can truly trace back to its origin. The feeling of going from the deep shame of wetting the bed to the brilliant elation of really seeing and experiencing my body as a strong, powerful, beautiful shape. And that was mine in a spotlight. Is there ever any doubt as to why I do this to this day? 
After 20 years, I'm still making shapes and telling stories in a spotlight, and for that, I will forever be grateful. This next story illustrates that burlesque isn't just for the young. In fact, its capacity to create space for all adult ages, bodies, genders, races, and abilities is the idyllic goal for the neo-burlesque. That's burlesque made since the early 90s movement. Bonnie Bodacious, published author and travel enthusiast, found her youth later in life through her experiences on the burlesque stage. I used to be old. I'm not old right now. I know that. But I am middle-aged. Technically, probably, a bit past the halfway mark, if you know what I mean. I'm 50, to be exact. I like to say I'm nifty, which is also true. The odd thing for me about being middle-aged is that people frequently act surprised to find out how old I am. They always think I'm much younger. I mean, I don't mind being 50, actually. I'm aging fucking gracefully. But I know I seem younger than I am. Part of it is just the perspective of realizing how little you really know and accepting the gift of all the things that are still ripe to learn and to taste for the first time. I can imagine how people see me, just careening around the world like an overgrown fourth grader with a very expensive champagne habit. So I get that I seem younger, but it tickles me because it wasn't so long ago, just a few decades in fact, when folks routinely thought I was much older than I was. When I was in my late 20s, people tended to assume I was approaching middle-aged, and the alarm on their faces when I corrected them was funny in a dark sort of way. You could see them trying to figure out if they really wanted to stick around and potentially be saddled with what must be a tragic story about why I'd aged so fast. The thing is, in my late 20s, I had a lot of gravitas. And we all know gravitas makes your skin sag. Hell, I walked through the world hunched over and limping, physically stunted by all the self-loathing I carried with me everywhere. To add to that weight, I also carried a heaping pile of righteous indignation for other folks in their quarter-life years who didn't appreciate what an amazing adult I was being. I mean, obviously, I was the best at adulting. I was full of shoulds. I should go to college, then go to college some more. You know what might help? Maybe some more college. I should get a career. And it didn't count as a career if you were allowed to wear jeans and didn't have a 401k. I should get married. I should have a baby. And I should do it now, because every good Southern girl knows that at 30, your uterus just dries up and falls right the fuck out. Once I had that baby, I should add washing cloth diapers and making homemade baby food to my to-do list. You know, on top of the work I brought home and that paper I needed to write for my next degree as a professional college student. By the time I turned 31, I was a stooped, limping, decrepit pressure cooker. Of course people assumed I was older than I was. A funny thing happened after I turned 31. The rest of my 30s hit. My 30s fucking unraveled me, and not in a cute way. It was halting and erratic and painful. There was blood, y'all. My 30s skinned me alive, and I was just standing there gasping 
as the images of who I should be, the life I should have, were ripped to shreds before my very eyes. Remember, I had spent all of my twenties shooting all over myself. Don't do that. That's a lot of bullshit. As my thirties ended, there I stood, swaying and off balance, staring in wonder at the steam rising off the ruins of the life I thought I had to have. I was blinking and confused, not comprehending how all the heaviness and the lightness could coexist inside me and outside me. How was I still standing? How did I not die? Because if I'm not actually that person I thought I was supposed to be, then who the fuck am I? And so, I turned 40. And I found some things in my 40s. One of the things I found was my body. I hadn't really been with my body in some time by then. My body and I were not one. I had not fully inhabited my body since some time before I was 13. I know because by 13 my body was under assault from all sides. I'm not even going to talk right now about the assault of pop culture and the media. Y'all know too much about all of that. My body was under assault physically by people who wanted to use my body as a means to their own ends. My body was under assault spiritually and mentally by some of the people that loved me the most. People who wanted the best for me. People who wanted to protect me. People who thought that the only way to do that was to teach me to hide my body and to feel shame for it. Looking back, I am so grateful to my ten-year-old self. Remembering her is how I know how far I've come. My ten-year-old self was smart as fuck. She was very well read. My ten-year-old self saw what was coming. She took stock and recognized that the path to survival would require going into hiding for decades. She took a bit of that sense that we all had as a child. Remember that? Remember what it felt like to fully inhabit your own body as a kid? When you did somersaults and cartwheels, it was joy and it was delight. And when you skinned your knee, it was outrage. Every feeling was connected to your body. And my 10-year-old self knew that I wouldn't survive what was coming unless she took a little piece of that connectedness, that resonance between flesh and spirit, that unselfconsciousness, and she wrapped it in a beautiful bit of fabric. She tied it up with ribbon, the curly kind, I'm sure, and she hid it. She hid it deep inside because she had faith that someday I'd come looking and someday I'd find it again. And thus began my 40s. When I was 42, for the first time, I walked topless on a Caribbean beach. I felt a lot of things. I felt anxiety and fear and shame. But that all dissipated surprisingly quickly because none of that really came from inside me. What stayed was my delight and joy. Oh, my goddess, y'all, the sun and the sea breeze and the salt air and... Then to slide into Mother Ocean and let these puppies float? Ugh. The next thing I felt? Fucking rage. There's a huge segment of our population that enjoys that privilege, thoughtlessly, wherever they please, without risk of recrimination or even arrest. My nipples are somehow dangerous and shameful. I don't care how old you are or what gender you are. If you have not walked topless on a tropical beach, get you some of that.
That right there is a human right. So yeah, I found myself, and now I love myself. It's not even just loving myself. I am in love with myself. And I know that I am in love with myself because I savor my flaws the same way I savor the flaws of my lovers. I am charmed by my own idiosyncrasies and my quirks the same way the quirks and idiosyncrasies of my children make me chuckle. I get mad at myself. Sure, I ask, self, why did you do that? Why did you say that? And then I say to myself, I'm sorry, and I promise to do better. And then I forgive myself, and I soothe myself with a piece of dark chocolate and maybe a bubble bath. I might buy myself a therapy session, depends on what's happening. Because that is how I love the people I love the most, with grace and kindness. And noticing that is how I learn to love me. I am middle-aged in a youth-obsessed world, and I'm doing all kinds of things. I was told my whole life middle-aged women didn't, couldn't, shouldn't do. I claim this space because it is mine to claim. I reclaim my time because it is mine to decide how to spend. I create and I connect because my art and my curiosity are my gifts to me and to you. And you, you are welcome. You are loved. I love you. It is time. If you've not found your treasure yet, start looking. Your body and your spirit yearn to inhabit each other fully again. Fall in love with all of you. Welcome yourself into glorious sensation and connection. I know you can do it. Because I have a whole lot of faith in every one of y'all's 10-year-old selves. And I believe in each and every one of you. third and final act is about the aforementioned ideals of the neo-burlesque movement. One might say this entire audible presentation is about the ideals of the neo-burlesque movement. If burlesque is supposed to be the theater of the people, then it stands that it should be representative of all people from the very smallest to the very largest. They all deserve to love themselves as much as any other burlesque performer does on stage. This next story is from Oodles of Trudels, who wants to show the world that all bodies, especially the larger ones, have permission to be seen loving themselves, even if they don't ever get on stage. When I first moved to Atlanta, I was really lonely, like really, really lonely and depressed and lonely and depressed but also really socially anxious. Technically, it was probably more like agoraphobia. Like I struggled to leave the house because the thought of trying to be social and failing was just crippling. So I got into therapy and we were working on ways to meet people that would actually be possible for me. She thought I should take a class someplace where I could engage in some casual conversation, but there was no obligation for social interactions. So off I went to Groupon. I found a coupon for a burlesque class at Half Off. I was really bad at the dancing, but my therapist was totally right. I talked to actual humans. 
I started going to shows. I took more classes. I went to more shows. Before I knew it, I was a part of a community. I was the best audience member ever. But I was definitely not going to be up on that stage. Probably not. Maybe if I lost some weight, I'd try it. Maybe if I got more comfortable, but, you know, probably not. Fast forward a couple of years, and my dad died. It put some things in perspective. He died while we still had plans to see each other soon, in that noncommittal way. He died with regrets and things that he still wanted to do, even though he'd done so much in his life. He went from the reservation to Vietnam to being a race car driver to traveling all over the world, and he still had regrets. It made me want to seize some moments. Before, I'd always said, I love burlesque, but I could never. After that, I decided I was going to perform once. I didn't think I was going to keep performing, but I wanted to do it once to prove to myself that I could because I didn't want to wait until I looked a certain way to be okay with myself. And I didn't want to find out that I never could. I didn't want to regret never trying. I went through an entire performance prep series and made an act and debuted it at a student showcase along with other grinduits. I put together this whole act about throwing off labels the world put on me and just accepting and loving the body I was in. It was trite. But I did not know that at the time. I did the damn thing and it was a total disaster. But also empowering. I thought the act was joyful, but surprisingly people cried and not just a few tears running down cheeks but for real boo-hoo crying the showcase was a two-day run and at the second show the teachers were ready with a box of tissues to pass around the audience and none of that is even hyperbole it actually happened and because of that I realized performing wasn't going to be a one-time thing it couldn't be I was going to have to keep doing it I had a responsibility to keep doing it because I understood that those tears weren't for me. Those people were crying for themselves. They were tears because they wanted to throw off those labels other people put on them. They wanted to accept themselves and by showing them that someone like me could do it, I was giving them permission. Five years ago, I performed for the first time. In that time, I've kept performing, and I've even helped other people perform for their first times. I never did the debut act again, but I also kind of did that act every time I hit the stage because it had soaked in and become part of me, even if that sounds a little trite. Our final story ties into representation through defiance of being too much for society to handle and truly making a celebration of that by being present and accounted for. This monologue is from Obsidian. While she only has one name, she speaks volumes through her interpretation of this poem by William Cunney. She does not know her beauty. She thinks her brown body has no glory. If she could dance naked under palm trees and see her image in the river, she would know. But there are no palm trees on the street. And dishwater gives back no images. This poem makes my heart weep. 
Its truthfulness almost embarrasses me. This is a poem written by William Cooney, and it was written in 1926. And here we are in 2023, and some people still believe that it's true. Her body has no glory. My first experience in learning that people did not value my life was when I was told to go back to Africa in first grade. All I knew to say was, I'm from Palm Beach. However, this tiny white man and his buddies spewed such hate that I went home and asked my parents, so where are we really from? As a young obsidian living in a small town in Florida, I was taught to dim my brow, answer yes ma'am, no ma'am, hold doors, don't be too loud, don't question being followed in stores, answer questions like, do you wash your hair? Without taking offense, speak proper English, dress nicely so that they don't think you're some kind of thug, and the list goes on. The sad thing is that I followed these rules even into my adulthood. Because being taught these rules indoctrinated me to think that, and believe that, maybe I needed to make people comfortable enough to believe that my brown body has glory. But demanding respect will never be okay for me, a black female, to expect. I also believed that following these rules would help save me from getting killed. And as we all know and have seen, no amount of dimming my brow, speaking the king's English, and dressing to the nines can ensure my safety or even guarantee being respected. Because people believe and will forever justify that my brown body has no glory. That my brown body has no glory. If she could dance naked under palm trees and see her image in the river, she would know. Those words. I had an auntie, Auntie Cora, that would glorify my skin color and my beauty every single time I saw her. And she would drill it into me and everyone around me. My parents would learn to regurgitate it with me when she would start the ritual of fawning over me. Ooh, look at that beautiful dark skin. The blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice, she would say. And I would sit there and drink it up. No one could possibly make me believe anything different. I really felt as though me and my dark ass skin are God's gift to you all and your welcome for most of my childhood. If she could see her image in the river, she would know. Hmm. But oh, those middle school years and the walls of all the self-esteem that my aunt had built up in me came tumbling down. If she could see herself reflected, hmm, if she could see herself reflected, if I could have seen myself reflected on television, in magazines, or the news as being more than entertainment, she would know her beauty. I would know my beauty. Maybe if I could have seen myself or people that looked like me in the media or on the news doing positive things, brown, fat bodies, maybe I would have known and seen my own beauty. I wish I could remember the exact moment 
that I stopped believing that me and my dark skin were it. But I definitely did. I definitely lost sight of being it. Was it the lack of beautiful black women on television and magazines? Was it Elliot calling me blackie with a disgusted look at every turn at school? Was it my white friends dropping one by one because they weren't allowed to have a black friend in the year 1999? Would they have seen my beauty or that I was just a kid that happened to be black if they were able to see me positively reflected in media? As I reflected about this in my adulthood, I realized why my Aunt Cora drilled this love of my beauty and my dark skin into me at such a young age. She knew that there would be no palm trees on my street, no chances to see my glorious reflection shrouded in the light of the sun, nothing and no one to echo my beauty back to me in the world. I'm so thankful that she used her experiences of what she faced while being black and female in the world to help build me up. She would also tell my parents not to let me get fat. Oops. Now back to the poem. If she could go see the world, but there are no palm trees on the street, and dishwater gives back no images. Dishwater gives back no images. Dishwater, a world that finds no value in my likeness, could and would ever give back images, at least not images of positivity. At some point, I had to learn that what I would have to stop waiting for is to see my reflection in media. For a great deal of my life, I have feared not being able to see myself fat, black, queer, and female reflected or even understood by the masses. I also didn't think that I should or could take up space while living unapologetically. As I've grown and come into myself, I got into the insane habit of asking for permission to exist while in this body, this skin color, my queerness, being female, or even taking up space. And then I found burlesque, and boy, did I learn to apologize less and take up all the space. I no longer live on a street with no palm trees. I now dance naked under them. I also have felt seen and heard, and seeing myself reflected in the most beautiful humans in this community. Not knowing my beauty, not seeing my reflection, no palm trees on my street is no longer my experience. And every person that is blessed to see my majestic curves on any stage is a witness. This has been a Candy Box Review production. The original stories and performances in this recording were lovingly crafted and performed by Minnie Mercury, Vixie Todd, Bonnie Bodacious, Oodles of Trudels, Obsidian, and me, Salula Love. I also did the production and editing of this piece and hope you'll check out the full show when we've got the venue and the time to make it happen. I think it's going to be pretty darn special. Please follow the Candy Box Review and Metropolitan Studios on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
Just a quick shout out to the Atlanta Fringe Festival. If it were not for their encouragement, we would not have ever thought to create a um, podcast with all of our stories. And it's been exciting and interesting. It's just a really great way to exercise our art in a completely different direction. So I just wanted to say thanks to them for that. And I'll see you all at the next burlesque show. Be well and take care. We would like to thank our Atlanta Fringe audio sponsor, Could Be Pretty Cool, a production company whose mission is to inspire community building through the arts. You can binge all of our audio shows at atlantafringe.org slash fringe dash audio or wherever you enjoy your podcasts.